Hello and welcome to episode four of A Blank Canvas. In this week's episode, I sit down and have a really great chat with a man called Clint Boone. If you don't know who Clint is, Clint is a uh, incredibly talented man. He's a musician from the Inspiral Carpets. He's a club DJ and now a radio presenter on XS Manchester. Well, in Manchester, of course. He's got so many great stories to tell about his time in a massive band, his time DJing all over the UK, across the world, touring the world. So many great stories. This is episode four of A Blank Canvas with Clint Boone. Welcome to A Blank Canvas with Cameron Ross. I kind of want to start at the start of uh, of your musical career. I mean, obviously, I've only got so long with you, and we can try and get through things as fast as possible. But I do find you a very interesting person in respect that I was watching a video of yours on YouTube. Uh, I think it was from 2000 and, 2013 or 2017. Mm-hmm. And you were saying how you've, back then, obviously not now, you had arguably three of the best jobs in the world. <laughs> you were a club, a club DJ, yeah. a radio DJ, and a musician, and they all work hand in hand perfectly. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? That's, um, I think just by, I, I became obsessed with music at an early age. So everything that I do, every activity is pretty much involved with music, whether it's as a musician, with the Inspirals, or me as a solo artist, um, playing records on the radio, playing records in nightclubs and at festivals, interviewing other musicians for various podcasts. And you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm just the ultimate groupie, I suppose, really. It's like, <laughs> you know, since, since I became um, obsessed with music as a child, it's just, I've always gravitated towards it. So yeah, I'm very privileged that I've ended up in a position where all my income comes from um, music-related activities. Um, So until the end of 2019, um, I was very active uh, radio presenting for Excess Manchester and uh, club DJing, well, not even clubs, events, festivals, the lot. How long have you been? You've been DJing at South for, is it 17, 18 years? 19 years every Saturday. 19 years. Wow. (laughs) I mean, the truth is, I mean, the last last night I did there was in... um, like March the 17th or something. And I didn't realise it was the last time because, you know, with it, the week after that, we were told that we were shutting down, everything was uh, being locked down. So I've not been back in South since March. And the real- reality is, Cameron, that it might not be reopening now. It might be f- finished forever because the uh, I think the landlord has got other ideas for what he wants to do with the building now. So we might not get back in there, which is quite sad, really, isn't it? I mean, given the fact you've, you've probably gone through uh, so many different more crises, crisis is crisis. I don't know what the word is yeah. over the last yeah. eight, 18, 19 years. Yeah. And it's taken this to sort of, I mean, pretty much batter an entire industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, my, you know, without getting too detailed about my financial situation, Excess Manchester is probably 30% of my income and the other 70% was DJing. And that 70% has totally gone. It's totally gone. And it's, it was um, actual bookings that I had in my diary. So it wasn't like, you know, what I would have estimated I might have got booking. This was a, a year's worth of um, bookings for festivals and gigs, and it's completely just gone. Um, and because, you know, I'm in a position where 
I'm self-employed, but I trade as a limited company, uh, and this sector has been given zero aid whatsoever. So all that, all that income um, has just been taken away, and uh, there's nothing in its place. So I've got two options. One is to sit around licking my wounds and being grumpy about it, or you know, embrace the extra time I've got on my hands to do other creative stuff, which is what I've been doing really. Um, so I'm in a position where, yeah, I wake up in the morning and think. <laughs> financially what a shitter <laughs> but then I'm thinking right you know let's get back onto this making music thing and I've been I've been making music constantly you know since well for, forever 20 odd years I mean you know with, with the Inspirals obviously we've made music but I've always been writing as well at home and recording and a lot of stuff sat on a shelf um, there's a big musical project um, well it's a film it's a musical film that we're making we've been writing it for 8 or 9 years and we're getting ready to start putting that out now to commission it to, to who's going to finance it. But Is that coming out next year? It won't come out next year, but we're hoping to start making it next year. But it's a musical, and I'm playing the main part in it, this guy called Billy Fielding, who's a shopkeeper, set in 1972. But I've written all the songs for that, so I've got 15 songs there that I've written and recorded. Um, so what I'm saying is music is my main thing. It always has been. You know, When people ask me what I do, my main thing is I'm a musician. And over the last 20 years, I've got, you know, more into radio presenting and club DJing, but now this is a time to start, you know, getting back onto making music my priority, you know, um, and that's what I'm doing. It's dead exciting, you know. I'm going to be launching, um, launching myself on Patreon in the next couple of weeks, which I don't even know what good Patreon idea. Is. Yeah, yeah, definitely, it's a good idea. It's absolutely perfect for somebody like me in the position that I'm in now. So, and it's um, dead exciting and I just think it's this next chapter is going to be as exciting as you know when the Inspiral started and when the Clint Boone experience started and when XFM signed me up to do radio it's like that. It's a, I feel like I'm on the threshold of um, a really exciting um, chapter in my life now uh, so that, that's come out of a place a place of darkness you know, be, you know being suddenly high and dry and having all the DJ work gone uh, you know within a few weeks or a few months I'm suddenly in a position where I'm thinking I might not need to DJ again <laughs> I'd feel to make records let other people play them you know what I mean do you, do you feel that you genuinely do miss the experience of DJing because I myself <laughs> irrelevant of the, the, the financial aspect mm. I really fucking miss it I miss seeing people's faces light up when you play a play a tune they've not heard in ages or you play a new tune and they're like oh what the fuck's this this is amazing yeah, yeah. I am missing it you know what for, for for a lot of months since March you know I, I've really enjoyed being at home and what I haven't missed is the the endless driving and travelling to gigs up and down the country um, and the madness of doing, you know, two and three gigs every Saturday night. I mean, last time I DJed with you at Antwerp Mansion, I'm sure then I had to leg it off to some other gig or I came straight from another gig. I can't remember which. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you might have been going to Blackburn or something like that after because yeah. you're like, yeah, I've, I've got to go, I've got to go. And I was like, no, stay, come get drunk with us. And you're like, no, I've got to go, yeah. got to go. So I'm not, I'm not missing that because my... You know, my working week until the middle of March was six radio shows a, a week for Excess Manchester and anything between three and seven DJ gigs a week. And it'd be a lot of travelling and a lot of long hours, late nights, you know. So I'm, I'm not missing that chaos of the, you know, the working week, the working, the schedule that I am missing people. I'm missing seeing a crowd of people go apeshit when you put a good record on. Uh, you know, that, that roar that you get, wherever you are, you might be DJing in a bar or at a festival, but... When you put a certain record on and you just get that, yes, you know what I mean. <laughs> so I'm, I'm definitely missing that, you know, that aspect of it. But I'll get, I'll get that back. You know, I mean, the fortunate thing that I've, well, the thing that I've been lucky to have throughout my career is that 
I've always had that satisfaction of knowing that people are um, getting a great amount of positivity from the records I'm playing or from the songs I'm singing in a gig. You know what I mean? It's like I, people said to me, do you miss being in the Inspirals? And I said, no, not really, because I still get that kick of putting a record on on the radio and seeing the tweets coming in saying tune. You know, so I, I, I'm constantly communicating with people, whether it's online or in the room, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it'll come back. I'm sure that, you know, we will end up DJing to crowds again, but it, it's probably going to be different. In my lifetime, it's going to be a lot different. You know, I mean, I'm 61 now, I'll be 62 in uh, next June. So do I want to be, you know, playing in sweaty clubs with people climbing around my shoulders? <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I think what I'm saying is this, that, that you know, the, 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 the financial thing, like I said, has been a massive hit. I can't afford to sit around and wait for that DJ work to come back at that level because it might not do. So in the meantime, I'm going to get onto these other things. You know, I've been developing my, my cow art. I've been selling online, which is fun. And, you know, people love it and they're paying me for it. Um, you know, so that's been nice. But, you know, the main thing is I'm going to start making records again and, and getting, that, getting the music out there. And, you know, hopefully that'll be my main thing now for the, the next chapter of my life, maybe for the rest of my life. That'll be, I can just sit at home, make music, and send it out there to the people, you know what I mean? I'll tell you something's worth mentioning as well, just in case anybody uh, hears this in the next few weeks and wants to check out something. Me and my wife started doing a a, a, a live-streamed DJ set every Friday night. We started in week one of the lockdown back in March. So 32 weeks we've been doing it. And it's every Friday night, and you listen to it on Beatstream, this app, the Beatstream app, which you can get from the App Store. And um, we've got like a real a community of a few hundred people that join us every Friday night to they put requests in on Twitter or shout outs on shout outs and me and my wife are there playing tunes having the bounce getting drunk as anything while we're doing it and it's it's a proper little um, a really unique little thing we've created it's it's audio only it's not visual it's just audio but you should check it out it's called Disco Rescue um, and if people want to go to beatstreambboxoffice.com that's where you can get the ticket or follow me on Twitter and you can see me uh, going on about it on there. But it's, uh, yeah, Disco Rescue. It's a great thing and we're enjoying doing that. So you're talking about making records again. I really want to know, when do you feel, obviously when you were younger, when did you feel that moment of talking to yourself? Okay, I think I've, I think I've made it here. I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do what I really wanted to do. And I'm getting paid to do it for the first time. When was that moment? I'm always curious to see yeah. how an artist of any field or a creative, you know, they sort of thrive as a young age to, sorry, stride as a young age to become a success in whether it's you know, musically or whether it's on television. And it's, I'm always mm. curious to see when was the point for you, I guess. I, I'll tell you what, rather than just telling you that point, I, the, the backstory for me was as a child, as far back as I can remember. So probably from the age of, four or five. I remember my mum and dad having records, you know, albums in, in the house and we'd have a record player. Um, and I've still got those records because all the albums that I grew up listening to, my mum and dad give them to me several years ago. So I'm actually sat here now looking at them on my record rack. You know what I mean? So the records yeah. that, that I was obsessed with as a child, and it, it was almost like, it wasn't just the music that I was obsessed with. It was the actual format of this, this big black shiny disc that had people's voices on it. And, and you know, the Beatles albums were, you know, the, the singing would be in the left channel, the drums would be in the right channel. And the whole mm. thing of stereo records, you know, and vinyl, I, I was obsessed with it from an early age or, or 
yeah, obsessed. That's the word. I was obsessed with it. And, you know, within that, you, you sit, you know, I got, as I got into my teens and I started collecting records and buying psychedelic records from the 1960s, you know, because I used to go to a lot of uh, record fairs and I'd, I'd buy a record just on the strength of it having a cool looking band on the cover from 1964, you know what I mean? And I remember reading, like, looking at these records of bands that I'd never heard of. I'm just thinking how amazing it must have been to be that drummer who's drummed and his, his music's in that groove on that record and the sleeve notes are written by the singer and I just, that whole world of what went on um, in, in, you know, in, in the culture of making a record, I was just enthralled by it and, you know, I use the word obsessed again, it just meant a lot to me, it meant everything to me. So when, you know, I eventually joined my own band uh, and at that point, I, I had a little studio, so I'd been used to recording. You know, I was recording my own music and hearing it played back on cassette tapes. This is starting probably 1982, 83 through to 84. Um, I bought an early one of the early four-track cassette recorders that Tascam made. And I started recording my own music and doing learning about multi-tracking. And that was a, a, a beautiful thing. You know, that was a beautiful chapter in my life, that discovery of, you know, how to actually get music onto tape. And then the MIDI revolution happened, which was incredible again, because that meant that somebody like me that was tinkering around with keyboards, I could literally have, you know, I could set up 50 clints. And when I pressed play, they'd all, they'd all start <laughs> playing the keyboard line that I'd given them or the sequence, you know. So that, that was a, a, a real revelation, the MIDI revolution. So was there any I, other instrument that you sat kind of dabbled with as well alongside? Yeah, I started, learned, started trying on guitar when I was about 15 or 16. That hurt my fingers. So then I thought I'll try bass guitar because that's two strings less, <clears throat> but that hurt my fingers even more. And then, uh, <laughs> so I just I just started on. I'll tell you what I started doing when punk happened, nineteen seventy six, and I was like sixteen, seventeen. I dropped out of education pretty much immediately. I was at college. I was planning on going to university, but I just thought, nah, bollocks to that. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get into music, get in a band. So I set about hanging out at bands, learning about what bands do, learning about how an AC30 amp worked and a microphone, how does a microphone work? And, and I started collecting like just any bits of musical equipment. So I wasn't planning on being a guitarist or a, you know, a keyboardist or whatever. I just started collecting weird little drum machines. And then, as I said, you know, the MIDI thing happened. It meant that anybody could make music using MIDI technology, you know, a little keyboard. Um, and I've still got my, my Atari um computers here that I used to do all my early stuff on Cubase. Wow. I've got, I've got me, I'm looking at my Atari now. I've got boxes of floppy disks. I'm a hoarder me, Cam, and I tell you, I've got everything that, ever, <laughs> everything that I ever owned is still in, in my house, pretty much. So, um, Good for you, though, keeping that. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I, it's Honestly, it's like some of the stories I could tell you about things that I've gone to that have ended up, you know, becoming little uh, little um, bits of treasure. It's amazing, really. Uh, but back to the story, anyway, so I joined the Inspirals in 80, 86. They were one of the bands that came to my little studio in Ashton to do a recording. Um, I fell in love with them. They fell in love with, you know, my idea of, you know, I had all these 60s keyboards at that point. And um, we just decided to get together, like, let's get this organ into this punk group and see how it sounds. And it just sounded like the best garage band I'd ever heard, you know, at the time. So that was from 86. I think by 88, we might have, put our first single out which is um our first single was keep the circle around we did an ep called the plane crash ep 12 inch vinyl and the main track on it was keep the circle around and i remember getting that record back from the uh, well the test pressing originally uh initially and just thinking that's me in that groove that's me in those grooves 
You know what I mean? And, and I, I could hear myself singing in the background. I could hear the the two organs that I played on the title was track. Was that a magical feeling for you then, back then? Absolutely, absolutely. Because I knew then that that, I think it dawned on me. What, what I've always loved about vinyl, yeah, particularly vinyl, not, not just music in general. I think you get some immortality. You know, when you put your record out, you get immortality. Like, you know, One Day Like This by Elbows still be around in a thousand years' time. But the idea with the vinyl, like I'm looking at my vinyl collection now. It's pretty much all the albums that I grew up with and, and the ones I've collected. I've, I've lost a few along the way, but those records that I'm looking at are indestructible, except if for fire or sandpaper, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, no, absolutely. You could lose your entire MP3 collection in a blip, couldn't you? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, some natural catastrophe or man-made catastrophe could absolutely erase every piece of music that's out there being streamed on the internet, whatever you know medium it's coming through, whatever platform it's on. It could all go like that. You know what I mean? But my records that are here, only fire or sandpaper will destroy them. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and it's, um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I'm looking at records now that are fifty and sixty years old. You know, I'm looking at. Winston Churchill's uh, speeches. I've got the, an album of, with all that on it. And it's like, these things just wow. are there forever. You know what I mean? And like I said, the records that I was listening to in my mum and dad's house 55 years ago, or whatever, I've still got them here. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So yeah, that's... Um, in, in, any, in, in, of, the, of the vinyls you're looking at right now, is there any of the, the bands or the, the records you'd have loved to have been involved in the production yourself? Um. I can't see Pet Sounds, Beach Boys, because that's what stirs in me. I'm, I have a, a studio in our basement, so a lot of my vinyl's here, but uh, Pet Sounds, uh, Beach Boys, just in terms of production, um, absolutely wonderful thing, you know what I mean? Well, the, the, the songwriting's gorgeous, well, but the, the production, Brian Wilson produced it, and I think it's still one of my go-to records. I wish I could have been in the room when he was making that. Um, so, yeah, I've always, I've always loved the Beach Boys. I've... I've the Fall, I've got all the Fall records. I think of pretty much most of the Fall albums. I love the Fall. Um, and then there's some records that I, I'm not really keen on listening to on vinyl. So there, there's a certain type of record, like the, the records that have got a bit of space in the production. And, you know, like your, your Pink Floyd sort of stuff and some of the jazz records I listen to. Um, they're perfect to listen to, you know, from vinyl on a nice hi-fi system, whereas the Ramones aren't. You know what I mean? I, lo I love the Ramones, <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I don't. I don't sit down with my vinyl record player for an evening with the Ramones. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a red wine. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, 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 a couple of bottles of red wine most nights. But uh, yeah, it's. Um, I think vinyl's still a beautiful thing, and I'm more excited by it now than I've ever been. I understand it more now. I think, like when I think about in the eighties when, um, how old was I? Mid twenties? Yeah, twenty five, twenty six onwards. I collected vinyl and I played it at home. But I didn't really appreciate the sonic quality of it uh, and the this the experience of it uh, as I do now. You know, since um, since living in this house in Stockport that we're at now, me and my wife have been here like I think been in this house fifteen years or something. And I set up a nice hi-fi system and dug out all my old vinyls again and started buying it again, buying new vinyl. And um, what do you think caused the resurgence of vinyl? Because obviously, in the last maybe what four, five, six, seven years, there's been a whole new wave of people investing money and buying vinyls, whether it's to collect, whether it's just to, like you say, experience and play. It's because, I mean, that generation is probably mainly the younger generation that are embracing vinyl more than everybody else. But it's because too many 
too many things that, that you know, the, the youth of today have around them. Too many of those things aren't tangible things. They're not things you can touch. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the digital age is an amazing thing. It's a great time to be a musician and it's a great time to be a music consumer because at the touch of a button, now I could access any piece of music that's ever been recorded. But the idea do you think that, that, also, do you think that also takes away from the enjoyment of the fact that you can literally access whatever you want, whenever you want it, and you're not sort of enjoying a full album, for example, or you're not enjoying, um, you know, a sort of genre of music. You're going from this to that because of playlists and this, that, and the other. Whereas, obviously, vinyl, you've you've got this record which you're having play in its entirety. Yeah, I, I think that. I think that the thing is that like the, the the people that are embracing vinyl now, they're the ones that are realizing that there is that other way of doing it, rather than just clicking, you know, and listening to the new Kanye album and flicking through to the next track and flicking through. To, yeah, the the old culture of getting up off your settee, putting the record on, putting the needle on, putting the lid down, sitting back on the settee, and twenty minutes after you have to get up and turn it over. It's it seems like a lot. Of, pissing about but it's actually it's a beautiful thing it's it's like going visiting your granny isn't it? it's like going visiting your granny rather than just phoning her up it's like that it's a different um it's a different experience to me and strange things have happened to me it, like since i put my, my new hi-fi system together at home in the last few years like i've really got into like classic jazz albums because i can appreciate now air the musicianship on those records you know as a musician i can appreciate what brilliant um you know virtual virtuosity i'm listening to on these records but also the sonic uh delight of sitting there and listening to you know some miles davis performance from 50 years ago 60 years ago that that is just um recorded in one take you know with four musicians around a microphone or whatever that that's it's a beautiful thing to sit and experience that you're on a nice music system so yeah for the first time in my life i've started listening to jazz in the last 10 years which is weird <laughs> but it's a journey and I think being a music lover is a journey you know I can remember a time when somebody played me Pink Floyd in 1973 or whatever and I thought that's shit and now it's just some, <laughs> some of the best music I've ever heard is Pink Floyd you know and so do you, you think that's because do you think that's because a, a a person can change like or develop their music taste like they can with a fine wine or something like that or do you think it's just because people go through uh, circles and cycles of enjoying different music. So I can remember um, when I used to love listening to uh, Muse and then I love listening to Fallout Boy and then I went to Chasing Status and then, yeah. I, you know, and now I'm enjoying sort of like Loyal Connor and Tom Mish and, you know, then you know, then, I, then I, now I'm somehow listening to 90s dance like Snap and, um, you know, Robin S. Yeah, it's. It, I, I mean, I, I love all those bands you just um, bands and artists you just named. Absolutely, and I think is I think you, if you see it as a journey, which I think I look back on my music, um, my love of music is my appreciation of music as being a journey, and it's influenced by people recommending things. It's influenced by you getting older and wiser and experiencing, you know, love and loss. So it is, um, it's something to be embraced that, you know, like the music I'm listening to today, like I might hate jazz in five years time. I might think it's the most pretentious bunch of wank I've ever heard, but <laughs> at the moment I'm enjoying it and, you know, hopefully I'll carry on doing so. And I think it's nice to remain open-minded about music that, you know, at, at first somebody might play something and you might think, I don't get that. Uh, I don't understand it. It doesn't touch me. 
but it doesn't mean it's it's um, you know worthless. It just means that you aren't ready for it. I heard something the other day on Six Music, and I can't remember who it was, but it's some um, some LA producer, music producer, and uh, I really didn't like it. And I, was, I said to my wife, you know, I said, I'm, I'm so I'm probably one of the most open-minded people when it comes to music appreciation. I can listen to anything, but there's one track came on and I, I just, I didn't get it and I had, to, I had to turn it off. And I was surprised at how it affected me. And I went online and read about this geezer. And when I checked out his other stuff, some of it was all right. And by the time I'd finished reading about him, I sort of got it. And I wish I could remember his name because <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that, that somebody who's completely open-minded like me to music suddenly heard something that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't understand it and I didn't get it. Was it very left of field kind of music? Yeah, or? very, very, uh, tempo was changing a lot. It was, you know, very, a lot of glitchiness going on in it. And it was just, um, I don't, it left me feeling a bit unsettled, but maybe that was the idea of what he, what he did. Um, I'll tell you what, when I figure out who it was, and remember I'll, I'll text you and you can read up on him. But as I said, when I finished investigating him on, on the internet, I sort of got it a bit more. And, um, some of his other tracks were much more accessible than that one. So can I ask, given given we're talking about an artist who we don't remember at the moment, but um, what do you think the music scene is like nowadays compared to five, ten years ago? And also, do you think it's going in? I know you can't really say that it's that it's the right direction per se, but do you think music is as good as it was 10, 15 years ago? Do you think it's completely different, the, the sound coming out now? I think, like, if we just forget about the, the pandemic and the lockdown and everything that's you know, just put that aside, you know, where, where we were at in sure, March, yeah, yeah. back in March. Um, I'm always very positive about the music scene in general, not just the scene that I'm involved with actively, which is pretty much indie rock and roll and it being on Excess Manchester and, you know, being a, you know, drive time presenter. I'm, I'm celebrating a lot of that music all the time. But, you know, when you, when you see, you know, the, the, I'm not a, an aficionado of hip hop and, and grime, but there's some really exciting stuff that keeps popping up. And um, I'll tell you what, we, we went to, me and my wife were at the Brits this year. Was that February? The last gig we went to, that was, the last live gig we went to was the Brits. So the last, <laughs> Not a bad live, bomb. the last live performance I saw, right, of all the amazing people that were on that night, Rod Stewart finished it off that night. Uh, he, did, <laughs> he did the encore. And he, he, um, he, he came on, what was the encore? He started with the, uh, a really slow record. I can tell by the way. Da, da, da. I don't want to talk about it. He started his uncle. He started the, the, the finale of the show was Rod Stewart doing that. And everybody started walking out. Everybody just got out and started going to the bar. And, but um, that night we saw Harry Styles, who we, we love. His new album's brilliant. We saw um, Lizzo was on the bill, who's brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, we saw um, Dave doing that amazing fucking piano performance did you see that yeah that was I saw that that was amazing yeah an amazing very, moment. Very I think Storms who was on the bill do you know what I'm saying I think, I think but so it's like you're talking you know, a cross section of music there you've got Pop with Lizzo and Harry you've got you know the grime artists you know Storms being the, the top of that tree at the moment in terms of um, mainstream success there's some amazing stuff going, going on in every genre um, to me like I love Sia and it's like it's ultimate pop, isn't it? I love, I love what she does. I love it. Do you like her or not? No, I think she's great. Yeah, I think yeah. she's great. Like she got a record out now that she's done with David Guetta. Yeah, and, that, that list. That's what I, yeah, I heard that on radio too the other day. Actually, I'm not. I'm not keen on the. I think the backing music. I'm a bit. 
I feel a bit let down by the backing. The actual music sounds like there's nothing in there. There's no exciting instruments or sounds going on to me. And that if you listen to it next time, you know what I mean. It's like it's a bit like lift music, the, the actual music. But the top <laughs> line, the melody, and her singing is is spot on. But I think I think Titanium by by Sia is just one of the greatest oh. records in in recent years to me. Um, and the way it builds, it's like a proper rush, isn't it? That's that, that's um, it's a beautiful thing. That so how do we get on that? Yeah, what I'm saying. <clears throat> To me, music is developing beautifully everywhere I look. And I know a lot of people will say to me, it used to be a lot of taxi drivers when I was getting driven into south, into town on a Saturday to do so, and taxi driver would figure, figure out who I was and what I did. And and he'd be like, oh, it, music's shit now, isn't it, compared with back when Manchester was about, uh, Happy Mondays, it's all shit now, isn't it? And, and they're wrong, it's not shit. It's, it's, they've just, some of these people have stopped looking. They've stopped, they've stopped um, searching for new music. You know what I mean? And they've stopped, they've switched off to the genres apart. I mean, it's ironic as well, given that there's so many ways to access new music now. Literally, Spotify have thousands of playlists that they curate. And yeah. that's just Spotify. You've got Amazon Music, you've got Deezer everywhere. You can listen to, you can listen to the radio for an hour and you'll listen, you'll probably hear a track you've not heard. Yeah. Well, depending on the station, to be fair. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I think certain people, block themselves off from enjoying new music because they're not music snobs that's the, the wrong phrase but it's along the same line of they don't want to let themselves explore new music because they're sort of comfortable with their allegiances to the band they've loved for so many so many years yeah and i think a lot of it is human nature and it? it's like being a music lover you know the amount of time that i've invested in music through in my lifetime is absolutely incredible and i think about it, you know the amount of hours that i've set you know like this morning i've just sat editing a vocal line for probably three hours and it's um you know the amount of time i've invested is you talking years and years and years and years of my life that have been actually listening to music making music buying music selling music on the radio i think with a lot of people it's they, they give up on that part of the journey don't they and it's it's i suppose an, an, an analogy is you know some people stop shaving some people stop trying to you know when they get in the 50s they'll stop trying to lose weight and they'll not bother about the ass, ass of the jeans being a bit baggy or whatever and you know what I mean? it's like they give up they give up don't they? Uh, and that's it's human nature i suppose isn't it but to me it's like no music's still the thing that do you still enjoy it as much as you did 20 30 years ago which aspects of it making it listening to it the the, the making of it yeah Absolutely. I mean, it's like something I'm working on a track that I'm going to be launching on Patreon, hopefully next week. I've been saying that for about two months now, but I'm just putting the finishing touches to that. And I was on it this morning um, in my little studio home. And the feeling it gives me, like a lot of other people recently in the last few weeks, I think a lot of us have had days where you've woken up and you you just feel that dark cloud. Partly because we know that there's a virus out there that's killing people. Partly because it's affecting all of us in you know profound ways. And partly because, you know, without getting too political, I don't feel like we're getting governed or led in the right way through all of this. So you wake up some days and it's just, even Mr. Optimistic Boone like me is like, <laughs> Mr. Glass is always half full and I'm the most positive person in, in the I world. I think many people who will be listening to this will agree with your sentiments exactly there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Positive, mate. It's, it's all, you know, it's only a shower. 
And it's like, you know, some days I've woke up and thought, fucking hell, what, how did this happen? And what, you know what I mean? Even, even I can get affected by that. So the most therapeutic thing that I've found is when I sit down and work on this music, I'm just it's creating, elated. And I'm just like, that's me. That's me. That's where I've been. And that's where I'm going back to. And, you know, my wife loves swimming. She really loves swimming. And she's had that taken away for, from her in March. And she went swimming at the local uh, swimming baths opened up last week and she went down there and she swung 70 lengths. You know, she's not swung for it. Well, since probably February. Is that eight months? I don't stop counting. And on her first first trip back to the swimming, swimming baths, and it's Olympic-sized pool as well, she did 70 okay. lengths. She swung <laughs> over a mile. And then she went back a couple of days after and did something similar. That's what she does uh, to lift spirits and to make herself feel healthy you know in every way and that's that, that's what music does to me uh, I don't really go running I did a bit of running a couple of years ago with my wife but I'm always too busy I've, I always wake up with a list of things that I need to do that are usually music related um, and that at the moment is you know setting up Patreon finishing this new track that I'm going to launch um, doing stuff like this with yourself doing my radio shows so it's all music is still the dominant thing in my life Um and I love it, and I feel very, you know, privileged and fortunate that that's the case. Really, I'm a lucky man. The reason why I'm doing this podcast right now is that I get, whether people believe this or not, a bit of a natural high from just talking to someone, recording this, editing it down at the end, like just everything to do with anything creative. I'm just sort of get a little like, oh, this is. I feel really good. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a strange feeling, and I think if if you're not sort of in the, the creative field saying that though, I think anyone, even if you're not in the creative field, when you sort of decorate your room at home, you'll yeah. get that sort of little, little tingle of like, wow, I, you know yeah. what I mean? I've created something. Yeah. It's funny. Isn't it? It's like, I'm, even going to the local tip the other day, give me a, a, a real positive. Because <laughs> 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 we went through a few months where, I mean, like the whole local tip, although the tips got shut down, didn't they? So for a few months, it all built up in my garden, all this rubbish in that. And, you know, when I got to go back to the tip, I was like, all right, lads, I'm back. Because <laughs> all the blokes know me at the tip. Well, like, Buddha, I'm here. Like, yeah, come on. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, just uh, you, you do what you do. Everybody's got to do what they do to, you know, I think all people have got something that makes them feel uplifted. But, you know, whether it's reading a novel, having a run, you know, talking to you on the floor, just find the, the things that make you feel good and do as much of that as you can through all this, uh, this uh, strange period that we're going through because it looks like it's going to carry on being weird for for the next few months doesn't it so um yeah just try and stay positive and do the things you love you know what i mean i do find it fascinating in a in a sort of in a way of like you said your last night at south yeah. i mean i can remember my last night when i was djing at revs the cuba in manchester and i didn't know it was my last night yeah. and it's just you just that's it it's Overnight, you've gone from doing something in your case, what you've been doing for twenty plus years, DJing. You must have put you must have put the time in, hours in for DJing. You know when I started DJing, right? Nineteen seventy-five. Wow. So I was okay, well, how- fifteen, and me and two friends, we decided to set up our own mobile disco, and we borrowed some money off our mums and dads, and we went to a shop called Roger Squires in. Um, um, near Sackville Street in Manchester the building's still there and they used to sell disco stuff like record decks you know record like two decks in one box and a little mix in the middle 
and you could buy your uh, all your disco lights from there and your microphones and all this kind of stuff. And we bought a mobile disco setup and uh, we started doing local community centres and youth clubs and things like that in around Dalden mainly. Um, and that carried on for a few years. And then I started doing DJing in local pubs like the the, the Grey Horse in Oldham that became the Castle. So I was doing, I was an active DJ and then um, the Inspirals took off 1986, 87 onwards. So I stopped DJing for that period. And then when the band took a break from 1995, uh, we had like nine years where we didn't do anything after that. But immediately I got back into DJing um, and it's been a full-time thing since then, or it was. Um, so yeah, I've been DJing for like 45 years technically, which is, again, I've put a lot of time in there and it's it's something I'm very proud of. Uh, and if that, you know, if, if this... Um, pandemic is the end of my DJ career, then so be it. You know, I'm I'm not going to sit here licking my wounds. I'm going to crack on and get on to the next bit of my life, you know, and I, I'll always think fondly. I'll always remember fondly my DJ, you know, years. What's some, what some of the best times? Because given your vast experience and the amount of years you've put in, you must have put in so many hours. If you were to work out how many hours, you're well and beyond an expert, well and truly beyond an expert level of, uh, of DJing. So I want to ask, what are there any moments in your DJing career where you can think of right now where it's like a sort of pinchy moment where you're like, fucking hell, is that happening? Did that happen? Like, did so-and-so do this or is there anything like that? Yeah, I've had a few of them. I think one of the big ones was being asked to be the first person <clears throat> to play any music back in the arena in Manchester. I was the first person since Ariana Grande ended her gig the night of the bomb. So when they came to reopen in oh. September of 2017, they said to me, because I've, I've got a great relationship with the arena, and they said, we'd like you to be the, um, the artist to open it up. So I played 22 minutes of music. Um, I can't remember, it was seven records. I just played seven monumental Manchester records and I included Heroes, David Bowie in there as well. But to be asked to do that was, you know, emotional. I was like, fucking hell, you know, that is... Um, they could have asked anybody to do that, you know what I mean? I think did Noel Gallagher play that night? I can't remember, but they could have asked any huge mainstream artist to be the first to come and make people dance in that room, and they asked me. So that was a very important moment. Uh, I think every gig that I've done at Kendall Calling over the last few years, I've got the, the closing slot now. Every year, I close the festival down after the... Uh, after the main headline gig on the main stage, then we move over to the house party tent and the, the last bit of Kendall calling is me DJing in there till like three in the morning or whatever it is. That is always incredible. Absolutely oh, beautiful every time. What makes it a great gig for you in terms of DJing? Is it the, can, can there be 50 people in the room, but as long as all 50 are just going fucking crazy, that makes yeah. a great gig? Or do, yeah. you, do you love it when it's a big, vast amount of people or... I'll tell you what it is with Kendall, first of all, it's the bottom line is it's the last part of the festival, so everybody wants to be part of it because it's not happening again until next year, usually. Um, everybody's off the tits. They've all spent the last <laughs> three or four days on drugs. I'm generalising here. And no, it's probably whatever, true. Whatever drugs they've got left, they've just necked it that night. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so I'm not condoning drug use by any means, Cameron, but you've got that. You've got that absolute it's probably a five, six hundred capacity tent. I'm, I'm guessing maybe a bit more. The the euphoria 
in the room is like nothing else that you can witness. Pro- probably when the Hacienda was its peak, that's what it was like then. So that's a, almost a primal experience for me, like doing, doing the Kendall thing. And again, I'm a big friend of the Kendall family. Um, and they, you know, they we've got a gentleman's agreement. I'm doing that slot every every year for the rest of my life. That's what they said. So that's nice, isn't it? Um, there was a magical moment about the year 2002, 2003, where I've been doing a lot of DJ work, mainly in clubs around the UK, and I got invited out to do Benny Kasim. Oh wow! Um, and it was. It, the dance tent for some reason they put me in the dance tent it was a big I can't remember it was, it was like um, like Vogue or something was having a big party a big dance party and they booked me to do the DJ gig now at that point I'd not really done any what I would call superstar DJ sort of work <laughs> and we turned me and my wife went out there like they, they flew us out sort of a nice hotel out, and we turned up at the gig probably half an hour before it was time for me to start and I walked into this tent and um, yeah, I mean, up until then, I'd only DJed in DJ booths, right? And there was this massive stage, and on the top of the stage was this massive podium, and then on top of the podium was a massive DJ booth, and there was like massive um, digital screens on each side of the stage, cameras everywhere, and they were going to put me in the middle of that little DJ booth. And I thought, oh, fucking hell, <laughs> hang on a minute. Um, and I think that was the first night where I actually thought. I've got to work the crowd here. I've got to go for it. I've got to get on the mic. I've got to point a lot, point at the sky, shout Boon Army, do all that business. And I did. I just switched it on that night. And I think that was a bit of a turning point. Uh, and I think my wife, Charlie, would agree because she saw it happening. Like, we're both like, what the fuck? What am I going to do here now? You know what I mean? I'm not Paul Oakenfold. I'm not Fat Boy Slim. I'm Clint, <laughs> I'm Clint from Oldham. You know what I mean? I'm going to play a bit of punk and a bit of Manchester music, a bit of this. And there's like... Thousands of people there waiting for it. And it went down well. But yeah, I think that was a bit of a turning point that night. I think I definitely learned something and uh, took it up a gear at Benny Kassim. Um, did that make you want to sort of DJ, like go for bigger, bigger, bigger shows and just sort of, did it like re, re, re light the fire of the excitement for the DJ world? I think it just was a, another string to me bow, to be honest with you. Because I mean, I still like, you know, I, I like DJing to, you know, I've done a few little house parties recently where somebody's said, can you come and DJ for me, my daughter's 21st or whatever. I love doing that. You know, if, if, if I put music on and I can see people start to nod and dance, I love it. So, nice, isn't it? It yeah, is nice. Whatever the size of room. There's some gigs, that, you know, I, I can be honest with it. Some nights I'll drive out to a gig and it might be somewhere in Blackpool that I've not done before or whatever. And, you know, I'll be outside parked up 10 minutes early. And some days I get that feeling of, not actually wanting to go in and do it. Yeah. You know I mean? that, that anxiety of, oh, God, I've got to do that again. But, you know, as soon as I get in and get the first record on whatever the first piece of music is, it always, that's it. That's why I'm doing it. That's why I love it. You know what I mean? No, I, I, I totally relate to that. I've had yeah. so many gigs where I've gone to, um, like, the outskirts of Manchester or... I remember, I remember I was asked to play a gig in Hazel Grove. I'd never been there before. I didn't even know where it was. Right. Um, jumped on the train and I played, I, I walked into this bar and it was tiny. There must have been 50 people in there. Um, and it was, the, the the booth was just disgusting. I could, I could, in fact, I couldn't even stand up straight because my head was hitting the roof. So I, <laughs> I, I, so I, I so the, for the whole night, my neck was like a bit of a kink looking down. And have you still, um, got, have you still got the big ear, by the way? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got the bigger, um, right? <laughs> yeah so, it, but it, it was crazy because I was fully expecting it to be this just disastrous, horrible gig because everything was going wrong. The train was delayed. I, I got there, I couldn't find the place. Yeah. And then when I got there, I just because of my, how I was feeling, I assumed everyone was looking at me in a weird way. And then <laughs> I, I started DJing, and I just sort of it was it was a fucking great night. And in fact, yeah. I didn't even drink that night either. And I had a great night. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It just. Uh... It's the ultimate remedy, isn't it, music? I did a gig once, right, at this uh, venue. It was the first time I'd done it. And I got on the internet to find out where it was. And all these stories popped up about there'd been a shooting. Right? Oh, fucking hell. Not, not long before, somebody had dri- driven past in a car and shot at the bouncers at the door. And they didn't get the, they, nobody got hurt. Well, I thought, I'm there, she went, wow, fuck this, what I've got to do tonight. I've got to go here. There's been a shooting, da, da, da. And I remember driving past, uh, it was open. I was a bit early. I drove past the front. But no, I parked up outside for a bit, just in my car with lights off, just getting up the, uh, trying to get the, the guns. And I could, you could still see the bullet hole in the door. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I'm thinking, why do I do this? Why do I have to do it? And usually the answer is because we need the money or whatever. But I went in and it just, it was fucking brilliant. The people were beautiful. Oh, nice. And I ended up going back there a lot. And when it shut down, eventually I was gutted that it shut down. And I'm still friends with the family that own it. But it's just that, you know, the, the the extremes of that feeling of dread or at least, you know, mild anxiety uh, before you walk into a place. And then within 30 minutes, you, you've made some friends for life and you just made a lot of, you know, people very happy. I mean, in that instance, it was a, a really working class sort of um, audience. And, you know, I had graft, grafting lads and girls and, you know, I just made some great friends in there. And every time I went in, we just had a, an amazing time. It was Carson's in Middleton. I don't even know it, but um, it was a really beautiful place to work on. Uh, hopefully one day they'll invite me back when they when they reopen. And hopefully this time with no incidents. Yeah. I mean, that that, that was an isolated, just some dickhead with a <laughs> no, of course, gun yeah. driving past. You know what I mean? He had a bit of a, he'd probably been booted out. And he put, the bouncer had probably booted him out the week before and he, you know, little hard man came back, borrowed somebody's gun and popped a little cap into the door did they call it cap <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh yeah I want to talk about your one cons, uh, constant at the moment which is your radio show yeah um, how, how do you feel when you're doing your radio show because I've I mean I, it's something I've wanted to do for years you must have a certain level of excitement every time you step into, step into the studio the thought of how many people listening and listening because not only do, do they want to hear music but they want to hear what you've got to say as well mm. It's um, it's a beautiful thing, and it? it's a beautiful feeling. And again, I just feel very lucky that I've ended up in that position because I remember in 1970 when I first heard my voice played back on a tape recorder. My mum and dad bought me a cassette deck. I think it was like Christmas of '69 going into '70, or it might have been the year after. I can't. It was around that era, and uh, they bought me a little cassette tape recorder. And on day one of having it, I switched on, put it on record, record and play. Spoke into the mic. My name's Clint, and this is my new cassette recorder. It's the Deca Legato. And when I played it back, I was like, who the fuck's that? <laughs> what is a horrible noise? And it's me talking. And I thought, so I, I just, I, you know, from that point on, I never liked my voice. And even when I started making records and singing, you know, it's like, or when I started seeing myself doing interviews on the telly for the band or on radio, I always thought my voice was just um, not my best attribute, really. Not my strongest point. So the idea that all these years later, you know, my main job 
well, my only work at the moment is is being on the radio. Um, it's quite bizarre, really. And I, I I often say I ended up in radio by accident. I didn't I didn't uh, intend. I didn't set out to be a radio presenter. It's just that after that that period of uh, from 1995 onwards, when the Inspirals took a break, people just started inviting me to do little radio shows for them, and uh, I went along and did it just because I could play play these really good records. I had records that I loved, and I'd, I'd say as little as possible at the beginning. And eventually I just got a taste for it. And, you know, it dawned on me, you know, people always tell me they like the fact that I'm, they can tell that I'm from around here. I'm not a pretentious sounding radio presenter most of the time. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I'm very lucky, you know, because all I do, I never plan what I'm going to say. Um, I'm, I'm very spontaneous, you know, most of the time. There'll be bullet points of what needs to be plugged. You know, we need to plug this charity event or we need to talk about this um you know this competition that's happening on the breakfast show or whatever but i never script what i'm going to say i never write down what i'm going to say and i think people really like that that it's spontaneous and at times it's absolutely throwaway nonsense like coming yeah, out I think that- coming out of every radiohead record by saying come on lad cheer up it's it's not being funny 15 years ago when I first said it on XFM but I still do it at the end of every Radiohead record and I'm not knocking I love it it's just just like a a proper dry northern it's the kind of thing my dad would have said that's my dad would have said it people love that though don't they people love the sort of some of my dad's catchphrases one was um, you know when he saw me in the early days in spirals when I was like you know I'd, I'd packed in normal jobs and I was just were, you know, starting to do little gigs around pubs and all the minutes band. And my dad had said, why don't you get a proper job? And that was one of his catchphrases, like a lot of dads. And then the other one was, I'd be listening to whatever music, and he'd come in and say, I think your record stuck. You know, like because <laughs> it was usually repetitive music. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that, come on, lad, cheer up. It's kind of thing my dad would have said at the end of a Radiohead record, you know what I mean? So, but yeah, that's why it appeals to people, doesn't it, in this part of the world. I don't know how I would get on in London, but... Um, you know, it's it's worked up here. I've I've been I've been constantly in radio since um, two thousand and four when I when I first joined the revolution in Oldham, um, and I've never really been out of work. Which is fucking. There's been moments when I thought that's the end of it. You know, when XFM became Radio X and they put me on a Sunday night slot instead of drive time, I thought then that's probably the end of my radio now. That, but then suddenly the BBC in Manchester employed me to do a Saturday night show and. Um, you know, after a year of that, XS Manchester got me on board. And then last Christmas, I don't even remember the story last Christmas, the news that the uh, XS Manchester was not shutting down, but changing into an urban music station. So we were all wheeled into the uh, the boardroom XS uh, just before Christmas and told from the end of March, you're out of work. So like, all right, what did I do? First thing I did was got onto all my DJ booking agents and said, right, I need as much DJ work as you can get me to replace my XS income. So, you know, my diary filled up beautifully for 2020. Spectacular. So we go into March. March starts, doesn't it? I'm, I'm thinking the end of March is the end of the radio station. And then suddenly, hey, oh, lockdown, pandemic, all the DJ work's gone. So I went into the lockdown at the beginning of March, middle of March, thinking I am I will have zero income by the end of March. Zero money coming into this house. We homeschool our kids. We homeschool our, our kids for seven years now, around about that. So my wife doesn't have an income. She homeschools the, the, the son, our sons. Um, and we went into the lockdown 
with all that over us, you know what I mean? Fucking hell. Fucking hell, mate. That so then, it was, and then two weeks into the lockdown, I get a phone call. We're out walking the dog one, one afternoon in the local park. I get a phone call from James Wilson, my producer, yeah, XS, saying, mate, you'll never guess what. Ofcom have overturned the decision, but they're not letting XS change. So I'm like, fucking, I, I think I had a little, I shed a tear, definitely shed a tear or two on the spot because that was a bit of a lifesaver. Um, and, you know, to the to the owner's credit, the people that own the radio station totally embraced that decision and they, they've gone with it. And, you know, they, they're being really proactive and forward thinking now about keeping the excess brand alive, which is a great thing. You know, even if I'm not there in a year or two, I don't know, but it's just the fact that Manchester needs that station because there's nothing else like it. There's no other station like it. Uh, BBC Radio Manchester is brilliant. It's, you know, it's very community-based, but it's not really about the cool music that XS celebrates. Um, and then you've got Six Music, which is great, but it's not a Manchester station as such. Um, it's, you know, it's worldwide, isn't it? So what we're doing at XS is we're completely embracing um, and celebrating the culture of the city, you know, whether it's the, the food and drink culture, the sport, uh, certainly the music, we could, you know, we, we celebrate Manchester music old and new. You know, we play a lot of new Manchester music through the daytime as well. So it's um, it's a great station. And yeah, there's little old me doing the drive time still uh, after all these years and not having to pretend to be posh or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, good good for you, mate. You've, you've, you're very clearly uh, fucking great at your job. And that's, not, not, that, that's me saying it from listening. And also because you've still got your show, you've, you're obviously very good, and I think you're a very personable person. And every time I've met you, and whenever I speak about you in conversation, everyone, whether they've met you from DJing or have DJed with you, all just say you're a you're a great guy. So, yeah, I, I can be a bit of a twat at times. <laughs> <laughs> well, can't we all? I don't. I've, I've, I've never. No, it's just it's nice that people think that, and you know, I um, I, I'm just looking at it because I've been given this uh, this life where. I was born at the right time. I was born to the right parents uh, in the right city or the right part of the world. And my journey through music has been just—I don't know—I'm I'm just blessed, really, that, that that's happened to me because I'm not brilliant at any of the things that, that we're talking about. I'm not—I'm not a great keyboard player. I'm a well-known one, but I'm not great. Um, I'm not the best radio presenter in the world. I'm just. You know, it's, it's there's a lot of flaws in what I do. Uh, I'm not the best club DJ. All I do is press play and shout Boone Army. You know what I mean? I don't do any beat mixing or anything like that. But um, I think people have always subscribed to the fact that they can see I'm passionate about what I do. You know what I mean? It's like they see me in South playing records. They can see that I'm having the time in my life. Well, and your energy is contagious. Even when yeah. I've DJed before or after you or whatever, it's just incredible to see. Like I, I can turn up in a bad mood and if I've seeing you play, I'm just like, all right, all right, fair, let's fucking go, then let's do yeah. it. I think that's it. I think it's like it's human instinct, isn't it? You, 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 you get switched on or you get, you get, you subscribe to somebody that's passionate about what they're doing. So that can be a bloke drilling, drilling an all in the in Dean's Gate. You know what I mean? It's like, you can tell when somebody's fucking happy with life, when they're loving it. And when somebody's like that, you want to be around them and you want to, you want to have a bit of it. You want to taste a bit of it. You want to feed off that. And I think that's where, you know, being on stage with the Inspirals, people can see that I'm buzzing my tits off. People listening to me on the radio can tell that I'm happy, I'm content with life. And and same, you know, in a nightclub playing I Am The Resurrection or whatever, it's just, um, it is infectious, isn't it? Like seeing somebody do something that they love doing. It's absolutely, 
infectious. So I think I've benefited from that, really. I'm just, I suppose, the bottom line is I'm very immature, I suppose, aren't I? That I'm still <laughs> stuck in that world. Of, you know, that, that kid that was listening to my mum and dad's record collection back in, uh, you know, the late 60s, it's still, that's still me, that. That's still how I am, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people see other people who are having fun as being immature. If, you, if you're having fun with life past 25, 30, clearly you've not grown up. <laughs> yeah, and I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that because I'm still, I think if anybody psychoanalyzed me, I've never done anything like, I've never had therapy or anything, but it'd be interesting to sit down with something and let somebody analyze what goes on in my head, what it is, because I think I've got my priorities right. You know, I'm a big time family man, you know, I've got five kids. Um, and that that's the most important thing. My family is, you know, when I, when I wake up in the morning, my first thought is, I've got to get money in to look after these people. You know, that's my, my main reason for being here is to look after these people, my wife. And I mean, we've got me and my wife got three children. I've got two from my first marriage. So that's me. Um, you know, that, that's me. When I wake up, my first thought is that keeping that going, feeding them, entertaining them, educating them. Um, but outside of that, I'm straight to the record player. I straight downstairs to my studio. You know what I mean? Or straight to watching some documentary about, you know, Fleetwood Mac or, mm. uh, you know, the guy that used to manage Alice Cooper. It's, some, it's just all about music. Everything I do is about music. You know, if I'm, if I'm reading a book, it's about music. I'm reading the Elton John book at the moment. Um, so that's it. Outside of family, it's just music all the way, every every minute, every second, you know. And uh, and I like that. So, yeah, but whether that makes me immature, I don't think it does. I mean, it's... It's my passion, but it's my career as well, isn't it? It's my career. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that's me really. Just that that six year old kid from Oldham listening to uh, Tom Jones <laughs> <laughs> and loving it. You're right. Well, Clint, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fucking pleasure talking to you. Really, has been so much fun. Yeah, no, it's nice talking to you as well. It'd be nice to see you in person. I had a shave and everything ready for this because I thought we we're going to see each other. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate the effort then in that case. Yeah, it wasn't a bit, I, I didn't have a beard or anything. Just, I don't like, a, if I'm going anywhere, I'll always have a shave. And I don't like going out with a bit of bristles or anything. So, I made an effort. But uh, yeah, don't worry. I'll send you a picture.